Hello and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Joining me today is Nathan Chappelle to talk about AI and fundraising. Nathan, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Alex. It's great to be here. So you're actually really involved in the world of AI and fundraising. So I was wondering if you could give people who don't know you already a brief intro of what led you up to this point and uh, your your past experience with AI and fundraising. Sure, yeah. I, I guess it's a little surreal for me because I spent 20 years um, in a just more traditional kind of fundraising role. Uh, but prior to joining kind of the ranks of the nonprofit world, I uh, started and sold two tech companies in my early 20s. Um, so I guess there's always been this area where I've been enamored with like new technology. I, I started a dot-com in 1997, which is the first company to sell skis on the internet. I created um, one of the first uh, mobile digital scanning devices um, that before PDF was even a PDF. So uh, it was kind of a weird thing. So I, I started out as, a, I guess, an early adopter technologist. Then I spent 20 years kind of in the fundraising world, which was not very innovative for the most part. And then around 2017, it might have been just kind of this full circle moment where I was leading a fundraising team, raising 150 to well, about 175 million a year at that point, and realized that the technology and analytics that we were using were just archaic. And, uh, you know, at the same time, kind of looking at the private sector and what they were doing, you know, how AI companies were just exploding all over the place and decided to learn everything I could about machine learning, deep learning at that point. And you know, so fast forward six years, that's all I do now is really um, focus on how to take things like different areas of, of deep learning, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and ideally apply them to the nonprofit sector to help boost generosity. AI is a really big popular buzzword these days. You can't go very far. Every single social media is talking about it. And I was hoping we could start maybe at a higher level, a general level of what AI is and what it isn't, and then work our way down to what is the best way to apply it today, at least in the world of fundraising. So with yeah. that in mind, you already mentioned three words, machine learning, deep learning, and AI. Could you maybe give a, a definition for each of those or, and see where the overlaps are for those three topics? Yeah, yeah, it's and thanks for kind of like rewinding on this piece because I, you know, when we're when I'm speaking with a lot of data scientists every day, we just kind of take so many terms for granted and then, you know, it 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 unfortunately, you know, a lot of people are still kind of catching up on these terms and you know, I have to like put my hat back on from 2017 when you know, I had been a technologist but I didn't know anything about AI and and fortunately I I did that kind of classic business school kind of mentality is like surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. And I was probably the most annoying person on the planet because I literally anyone that like had a PhD or was really good at statistics, I would like corner them and like, what about this? And what about that? And what does this mean? And, and, you know, that's how you learn. And, and so really, and it, it can be a little confusing because the, the term AI is so generalized now, it can mean almost like anything and everything. And so, um, you know, people like Sam Altman at OpenAI will talk about how they invented AI. Well, AI as a term essentially just means um, that you're training a computer to do things that were once 
things that humans would do. So just as a term, I mean, the term actually was developed or created in 1955. And it was really this idea that they could train a computer to first um, play chess and to think like a human and actually beat a person uh, playing chess, which it took them many, many more years to be able to do that. So the term right now, AI, it just refers to like any type of computer uh, program that simulates or or makes, uh, that does things that a human w- would have done more manually at that point. There are subsets of AI, um, which really gets down into kind of like the mechanics of how things get done. Those subsets like machine learning and deep learning, in fact, are subsets of each other. So machine learning is really this idea that a computer can take lots and lots of data and find correlations between that data to essentially make predictions. Deep learning kind of has been the science that's taken machine learning to the next level. Deep learning can essentially um, go beyond um, you know, thousand, thousands of data points and find these really strong, it re- create really strong predictions on things that a lot of times are that feel intuitive but we don't know why they feel intuitive. And so um, deep learning essentially is mimics the human brain where when we see or or um, smell or taste something more often, the synapses in our brain get stronger. So it means that we recall them in our memory quicker. But deep learning models that kind of same behavior that the brain uses. And the more times it sees patterns, in different types of data, the quicker it recalls it, the stronger the synapses get in in deep learning. And so that's kind of the general sense. And then to throw one more on there, um, which to your point earlier, which is the 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 buzzword, um, which is generative AI um, or ChatGPT, which is a brand of generated uh, generative AI or large language models. Those are essentially the new frontier in computing that is a lot has been able to use massive massive amounts of data and essentially predict what's going to come next the key element i think for the the language the large language model is that it's a it's based on language so when you say what comes next it's not because it has an understanding of what the world actually is and the relationships between objects in that world it's really an association between words and in a sentence so because it's been exposed to so much data in, in terms of words, it can extrapolate and create new sentence structures, right? Is that, yeah. would you say that's yeah. fair? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it really is just essentially consumed all the data from everywhere in the world. And it found patterns that if you're going to use these three words together, that the fourth word would likely be this. And they've the models, you know, which are not new. I mean, ChatGPT is, you know, the new interface of GPT models, uh, which has made it user friendly. But you know, this is computing that's been going on for a while now, and because of that, these models have gotten very good at predicting, you know, what those next words might be. And so there are obviously many advantages to being able to use AI and using that power of those of that language. And there's also many, or several at least, shortcomings. And the one I wanted to just bring in, bring people's attention to is the this uh, term called to hallucinate. And that ChatGPT is great at sometimes creating uh, new ideas—not really new ideas, but basically taking existing ideas and creating new ideas from those ideas, which I guess is a form of creativity. But it also has a 
once in a while a moment where it hallucinates. And an example that I remember reading about was someone did a search about themselves as a content creator um, and invented all kinds of stuff that didn't wasn't true, wasn't accurate. <laughs> so is there anything that you can suggest or talk about in terms of how do you um, either mitigate those kinds of hallucinations or how do you work with it, knowing that it's not a, like whatever is generated from ChatGPT and its siblings isn't necessarily 100% accurate and true? Yeah, I think this is it's a, such an interesting topic that we could we could spend a lot of time on this because you know if you know when you're talking about hallucinations and making up things, it actually sounds a lot like humans, right? So, like when you're talking to a human, you don't actually take every single thing that they say and say this is fact. In fact, you know, whenever they they question people after some sort of like crime or murder and they they interview them about what they saw you know multiple people have different iterations of it and then they will change their mind of what what they saw because there is lots of different interpretation i think the 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 challenging thing for a lot of people to think about generative ai and large language models if we equate them as software software meaning like you know like in the old days we'd have like a cd rom and you put the cd rom in your computer and it would only execute one thing exactly the same way every single time that was the benefit of that software it didn't have a mind of its own it just it did its thing with 100 degree precision unless you know you got the blue screen and you had a reboot it was it, it's reliable and the the hard thing is if people are thinking about generative ai like software they will absolutely get hung up on this idea of hallucination and that it's coming up with new things that aren't exactly true. I think it's a, the better way of thinking about, you know, generative AI um, is that, A, you should probably never trust it, um, that it's not to, it's not software in the sense that it can't only just execute one thing, but that it is essentially what, you know, Microsoft, in fact, is calling it as a co-pilot that it's something that you use to augment or enrich your thought process, but not to replace it. This is where I think, you know, the human aspect of AI is absolutely critical um, in the sense that, you know, that these types of models are, are there to, you know, help improve efficiency or, but not to replace it or to improve creativity, but not to replace it or improve empathy, but not to replace it. And so, um, there, I think there are a lot of benefits to hallucination because it keeps it a bit more real in some ways. Right. You don't take it just at face value. You actually have to spend the time. You still have to spend the time and verify, trust but verify kind of thing, which means that it's like anything else, it's a tool in that you can use it. It can maybe create a first draft of something for you or or inspire you to think about something but you still have to do some due diligence after that to make sure that what it said is accurate and if you can use it and if you should use it. Like there's still a human element that's not going away, um, which is why people who are used, it's, it's not so much the trend I've heard is not so much that AI is going to replace people, at least not in the short term. It's the people using AI are going to replace the people not using AI. A hundred percent. I mean, that you know, this is where I go. Yeah, I go back to like hallucinations. Good because without it, we would have already been replaced. Like, I mean, the reality of these systems were so good and so infallible that they understood everything about everything. You know, infallibly and and you know, with absolute precision. Like, we would we would be in a very different conversation right now. 
you know, so at the end of the day, like we're still very much in this world where these models are not perfect. Um, they're there to help enrich. And I believe, absolutely believe, you know, in the world of fundraising, you know, it's, you know, fundraising is a highly creative, empathetic type job that it won't be, you know, robots won't replace fundraisers, but fundraisers that use AI will replace those that don't. I believe that's true for nonprofits. I don't think there's a future where nonprofits aren't um, successful. You know, I don't think you can be successful in a future in the world that we're competing in without, you know, better intelligence, better co-pilots or better, you know, support mechanisms around you that are helping helping you, you know, really deliver your mission, you know, at greater speed. I also want to really drive home the point that um, this is an evolution. This is the, the beginning. It's an exponential curve. Things are just going to speed up. Uh, it's not slowing down. AI is now part of our life and it will be a growing part of our life at this point forward. So it's something that we can't and shouldn't ignore because it, let's, it is and can be a very powerful tool. So let's find ways to leverage it in the most efficient way possible uh, and not shy away from it. Don't think, don't, don't think that this is just going to be another buzz thing that is going to come and go, a fad that's going to come and go. That the, the There's a moment where everyone needs to understand it, figure out how to leverage it in their own use cases, uh, and understand that this is just going to get better, faster, and stronger as time goes on. I, I agree. I mean, I think that's, Frankly, one of the things that concerns me the most right now is that, you know, the nonprofit sector, which has been historically, is historically slow to adopt. They're slow to invest in innovation, uh, any kind of R&D. They're slow to adopt uh, technology. I mean, I go around the country now speaking, and it's amazing how, as a percentage, how few nonprofits are are using this type of technology, whether it's machine learning, deep learning, or generative AI. And almost to your point of like waiting it out to see, well, it's if it's a fad, like, well, crypto was kind of a fad, so maybe this will be a fad. And I think uh I think the biggest risk is on people and, and organizations that require and need efficiency not leaning into these tools thinking that they're going to go away. I mean, we, to your point, things are absolutely only speeding up. It will not slow down. I don't think people understand the gravity, the transformative nature of this technology. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to look very far for like very high level thought leaders, whether it's Bill Gates or whoever it is saying, you know, this, this breakthrough in AI is the equivalent of the internet browser. I mean, if we think about, I, I watched this little newscast the other day from 1994 when they were talking about the at symbol and how like no one, and it was like on like ABC News and it was like, what is this at symbol? Like we don't even understand it and what does it mean? And, you know, we've come a long way, you know, we're not putting the genie back in the bottle at this point, you know, it's kind of like you better learn how to use it and use it well, because those that you know, you're competing with R and you will just not be that competitive in the future if you can't keep up. A lot of organizations are integrating AI as much as possible, Salesforce being one of them. I mean, they talk about AI clouds and and just integrating AI, at least the current version of ChatGPT of AI, into everything that they can. And I know that there's a general appetite to do that. Um, maybe to your point, there isn't quite, they haven't figured out exactly 
when and then where, when and when they shouldn't. But the idea is that the more, that the better you, the sooner you use it, the better off you're going to be. So that uh, there might be some use cases where it doesn't make any sense that their people are integrating it anyway, but at least they're moving their knowledge forward. And when mm-hmm. they have better understanding of how to use it, more efficient ways of using it, they're already in place. All those mechanisms are in place so that they can leverage the technology. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Salesforce is a great example and timely, obviously, because they had their AI uh, day or whatever they called it a few weeks ago. And, you know, Mark Benioff, you know, just did a great job kind of articulating how transformative AI will be for Salesforce. And to your point, you know, integrating AI into every area of Salesforce. But something also, you know, you know, one thing he said was, you know, this is the most transformative technology of our time. And then he paused and said, and perhaps of all time. And this is someone, you know, who obviously is at the tip of the sphere in terms of understanding kind of like the world order of like how technology influences business. And to the point where, you know, they're making a major shift as an organization to ensure that AI is is integrated so that, you know, whether it's nonprofits or for-profits have access to all the the tools necessary to compete. You know, there was an article in Harvard Business Review. I, I used to reference this a lot. It was probably like eight years now. And it said that organizations that fail to adopt AI may never catch up. And to your point, you know, this is the thing where I think people underestimate the the learning aspect of AI. AI is not static and it's not software. It's actually learning. It's getting better and better and better over time. So and we see this with our clients. So I work with a client, say they adopt, uh, we build a, a custom machine learning model two years ago, and now a new organization that competes with them essentially wants to build a machine learning model. The, the difference is that the new organization is not two years behind the one that started two years ago. There are at least 24 machine learning cycles or 48 machine learning cycles behind. They that machine learning is continuing to learn and learn and learn and learn. So it's not a, you can't measure your progress in a matter of months or years. The organizations that adopt AI earlier will have an exponential advantage over those that wait. And that's, I think people really fail to understand that it's not like, oh, I just need to get everything ready. And at certain point when I've got my data clean and I, I know where my data is at, then I'll be ready. The, the exponential learning aspect of AI is what fundamentally will separate those that have versus those that have not. And, um, and so, I mean, only in conversations like this that we can really articulate the sense of urgency that organizations really need to be looking at through that lens. So you touch upon an interesting concept or idea in that, and I'll phrase it as a question, is AI personalized at this point or is it common in the sense of if I'm using ChatGPT to do my work as a fundraiser, I'm obviously leveraging the knowledge that I got from past uh, past interactions. But is it if I'm starting to input or use the, my data with it, or if I use another type of AI that uses my data, is it is that version of the AI like my version? Do I have my own version of AI versus another organization is using another version of AI? Or is it all just a common AI and we're just using it like a shared service. Yeah. Well, the answer obviously is is going to be it absolutely like it depends. Um, so there, and I guess the answer is yes and yes. <laughs> it it, de- it depends on which versions you're using. So 
um, to your to, to the first example, you know, a a tool like ChatGPT that is built in aggregate, meaning that it's just it's uh, collectively. You now you can turn on like privacy mode so that your data is not being stored or not stored for very long or whatever it might be. Um, that data is collective; it's not personalized, you know, um, at the start, but it can start learning from the data that you're feeding it. And so, in, in fact, they're going to be introducing files, or they just started introducing files in the beta version of ChatGPT, where you can load your your specific data so that it becomes a bit more personalized to you. There are also lots of other um, GPT or, or generative AI models that are built and installed specifically only for a certain company, you know. Um, and so right now, you don't, you know, you're interfacing as an individual with a generalized, you know, AI model that is learning from everyone. Um, and that's why, you know, kind of the rule of thumb is don't put anything confidential into an open uh, uh, generative AI model because it's going to be used and it's going to show up somewhere else, you know, uh, later on down the road. Now, there are other types of AI like machine learning, deep learning, which become highly personalized. So the the idea uh, it, it, or can i guess um if they're built this way so the way we actually build models is only specific to a specific client and their specific data and so there's never any collusion of two different clients sharing data um they're completely isolated from one another so in those cases we're talking about absolute precision in in the sense that you know we build a deep learning model for a large nonprofit that's only based on their data, it only knows the behaviors of their donors and their non-donors. And so, um, it again, going back to the beginning, it depends on how you're using it, but that's probably one of the most fundamental questions that a person that wants to deploy AI or buy AI needs to ask is, is this data specific only to me or my organization, or is it in is it aggregated in any way? Is it national or international type data? I mean, that that absolutely is a fundamental question that that you have to start with. I'm glad you brought up the aggregate and the personalization or the um, the sharing your personal data with it because I think that's a really key element, especially for nonprofits, is that they have to be careful of which AI they're using to know whether if I input all my donor data, all my personal information for my donors and volunteers, will it be used for other purposes and so asking that question and making sure you know the answer to that question is a very important step before you start using it. And I've heard yeah. that initial versions of, of ChatGPT and other AIs, because it's trained on a large data model that we as humans have built, um, that the initial versions were a bit sexist sometimes, they were a bit racist sometimes, and they've had to make certain corrections to it or alterations to it to be more uh, accepting, more diverse. Um, anything you could mention about that kind of stuff of, of um, keeping those considerations in mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, again, that it's that understanding that, you know, how these models get built. They're not, they're, they didn't only just learn on their own. I mean, OpenAI has talked very openly um, in front of Congress and, and other uh, organizations in, in terms of the great lengths they went to essentially train their models on what good or bad meant. And, you know, at the beginning, you know, when you're just saying consume all of the, the data from the internet and the history of the world, 
Um, and actually, I think it was Facebook that did this years ago, right? Where they think they created a model and they they allowed it to go live. It might have been Microsoft. And and all it knew was all the data that it consumed. And it was never told what was good or bad. And the, the algorithm uh, or the bot that was an AI-driven bot became racist, like, within, like, 12 minutes. I mean, it was just, like, in, in, like, in a really, really bad way. Because, obviously, if all the good information that's on the Internet, there's also lots of bad information on the Internet. And so... I think a lot of people don't really understand the 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 responsibility of an AI company like an open AI or you know Google with Bard and and you know there's a plethora of others now obviously that have to take the responsibility as a company to train the model on what good or bad actually means that also creates tremendous amount of bias because what good or bad means to you is different than what it means to me and so Again, I, I think it all goes back to the end user understanding that these models are not meant to be infallible. They're not meant to replace a human um, yet, but that they um, they are going to provide as much information that they have access to with the training that they had access to. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's lots of, challenging things there. I mean, OpenAI had paid, I mean, a, a lot of it was done offshore, but individuals that had to go through every day for however many, you know, working 10, 12 hours a day, classifying something as good or bad, you know, and training the models on what good or bad meant. They took that, that responsibility very seriously. Um, and the risk is that other organizations that are quick to try to get large language models out or generative AI out into the world that don't take those precautions, I do think that we'll see a lot of kind of unscrupulous types of, of models in the future. And I think the end user needs to understand, like, is this model aligned kind of with my own personal values or not? Did they go through the effort of scrubbing it to make sure that it was was built to do no harm? Or was it just a race to get you know, profit out into the world. From the perspective of a nonprofit who's leaning towards or wants to learn and start using AI, and given all these risks, the risks of not using AI and, and waiting too long, the risks of, you know, making sure that the AI is responsible and trained well, what would be some of the, the ways that a nonprofit could enter into the AI world in a responsible way? Yeah, I, I think this has totally shifted, you know, since I've started working in the space. I mean, back in, gosh, it would have been, um, I don't know, probably eight years ago, nine years ago, I was speaking at a um, Association of Fundraising Professional Conference, and and I was talking about essentially this idea of the future of, of generosity, you know, AI and the future of generosity. And, and someone in the audience asked, like, you know, this sounds great, but, you know, is this only for like the 1% of elite, the largest nonprofits in the world, or is this something, you know, that the average nonprofit can, you know, have access to? And, and unfortunately, the answer at that time, you know, I guess it would have been around 20, uh, 2000, uh, well, I don't know. Yeah, probably about six, seven years ago. So it wasn't even that long ago. It seems like it was longer. It wasn't that long ago. And, and the answer was like, unfortunately, you know, it's only for the elite right now. You know, we're going to have to wait until both a couple things happen. I mean, the cost of computing has to come way, way down for nonprofits to be able to afford it. And, you know, and the advances in computing have to increase. And so what we've seen in the last seven, eight, 
really in probably the last 10 years where AI has really started to come into its own is that it's driven down the cost. So storage is at an all-time low. Compute power is at an all-time low. Data is at an all-time low. So I think um, when when we're talking about one is a nonprofit, I firmly believe, cannot afford to wait. There's absolutely no future for a nonprofit. I know I'm probably super biased in this, but absolutely, I do not think there's a future for a nonprofit that refuses to to use AI to create efficiency. I think it's irresponsible, frankly, um, for a nonprofit to to not use AI at this point. And I think donors, you know, will demand, you know, efficiencies in, in the future. And at this point, because the cost of, you know, storage and cloud and, and compute power and data has become so affordable, there are AI tools, like we, we have an AI tool that we provide for free to all of our clients. And then we have custom AI models that we build for larger nonprofits that want to take it to the next level. I don't think this is a thing where people are are at a point anymore, like it was seven years ago, where they have to wait. They're, these tools are available today. And and earlier, you know, we're talking about GPT and generative AI. Those are free. Like those are things like if I want 10 ideas on how to steward a donor, you know, I can use that today in 30 seconds and get ideas to boost my efficiency and my creativity. And so there's absolutely no need to wait. And and I'll I mean, I guess double down on this point that I feel like it's irresponsible for organizations to to wait at this point. And then it, it, doubling down also on the responsibility side. So knowing that they a nonprofits should share a certain amount of data about themselves and their donors to be able to get the proper and the most beneficial results from it. Where is the line between sharing enough and not sharing too much to make sure that um, you know privacy models are still respected and and their data is not shared among other people or other nonprofits? Yeah, I think now this brings us into like a whole different area that I like my my probably largest most um, annoying soapbox at the moment, which is really around the idea of responsible AI, which I believe is not any companies or nonprofits um, responsibility, I believe is every single person's responsibility, every person, um, individual, every person who works in a, in a nonprofit or in a company that builds or maintains models, responsible AI is, is everything. And so I think that that line is absolutely, um, one, it has to be questioned. And so you just asking the question is really where you start is, is, um, is the data that we're providing to this AI is it um, is it private? Is it secure? Is it um, is it in alignment with what a donor would expect um, or not? And you know, I mean, this is like an an age old thing. I don't know if it was Bloomberg or Warren Buffett or whichever the the adage was. Like, I don't do anything that I don't want to see that I wouldn't want to see in the front page of the newspaper tomorrow. And that's kind of the easiest way for you know, a nonprofit or a nonprofit professional or just individual ask themselves that question. Is this, you know, essentially betraying trust um, potentially in any way if this was found out that I'm putting this information in? I'm I'm absolutely uh, like maniacal about this idea that you should absolutely not work with any company building AI that is not 
you know, that doesn't prioritize privacy and security. I think those are probably the two most fundamental um, issues of the fundraising world today, because, you know, and really, I guess my sense on this is so strong because we work in a sector unlike any other sector. There's no product that nonprofits fall back on. There's no like, you know what, you gave away my data, but you got, you know, you got that really cool pair of shoes. Like there's none of that in the nonprofit world. In the nonprofit world, everything that nonprofits do is based on trust. And so, you know, to me, that means that privacy and security, and then in second, very, very close tied second to that is ethics and equity around data are like literally like just an insanely maniacal focus on those things, like uncompromised discipline around, you know, for nonprofits to ensure that however tempting it is, however easy a vendor might make it seem is that if you can't answer the question, is this, does this enhance trust or does this, could this diminish trust? Um, that has to be literally at the forefront of every nonprofit's, you know, first question before using anything AI related. It also sounds like it's a good time for nonprofits to update their um, terms and conditions and privacy policies to make sure that it's, uh, it mentions that the fact that they may use AI to share certain information to get new ideas and that kind of transparency might help as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality in our sector, you know, there there are lots of responsible AI frameworks in the world, um, you know, and and like the EU is will probably start regulating AI, you know, large um, AI models that have to be registered with the government. I mean, there's regulation on the type of chips um, that can be imported and exported in the U.S. So I've been working now for a few years, but really it's been the last year since ChatGPT came on the market. It created so much buzz to your earlier point, Alex, about just like, you, you can't go anywhere without hearing about it now. So I I pulled together about, oh, we have about 1,100 people on LinkedIn on this, uh, just literally, it's just a collaboration, a work group called fundraising.ai. And about 100 people across different sectors and international have looked at creating a responsible AI framework for fundraising specifically. And and mainly because a lot of those other frameworks that exist in the world don't have as much of a priority on trust that we need in the fundraising world. So fundraising sector is not a very healthy sector to begin with. We just, giving USA, we just experienced the largest drop in individual giving in the history of the report. So, you know, things that prioritize trust have to be at, at the forefront. This, this responsible AI framework um, is going to actually be released on July 15th. And so... Uh, and anyone can sign it, any individual, data scientist, practitioner, fundraiser, nonprofit, organization can essentially endorse this framework. I think this will go a long way in at least um, educating the sector on what questions to ask. I wonder if we can get tactical for one second, um, because that's a good point about how donations have been going down. There's a general trend, and, and last year has been the worst downward slope. Is there any specific tactical advice that you could offer a nonprofit to to use or how to use AI to kind of reverse this trend or to flatline it or to improve fundraising in general? Yeah, I mean, it really goes back to my first, you know, my my start in working in AI to begin with. I think it, you know, I didn't know 
that the trends were as significant as they were in terms of the decline. I'd been following the decline for many years, reading the Giving USA report and looking at you know Canada and Europe and in terms of following very similar declines that the average person was just kind of opting out from charitable giving. I think when I when I so when I started working in machine learning, deep learning, it was to create more precision and personalization to help kind of reverse those downward trends. And that's what we see now. I mean, I, I firmly believe that the, the, the realities of the decline in individual giving are really a condition that nonprofits have made giving more transactional. So they've treated donors in a way where, you know, using software, you know, essentially like this idea of just like making something more routine and just doing it over and over again and acquiring more donors at any cost is really done a lot of harm to our industry. I, I believe that AI is the only scalable solution to helping reverse that generosity crisis. And so the sense that the work that I've been working on now for six years has really nothing to do with, with revenue. It has to do with measuring a person's connection with an organization. And so if we're talking about uh, an average nonprofit that has you know 100 data points or so about an individual, there's um, data that you can enrich, you know, from outside sources, and so this is what this is how I got involved in this uh, a long time ago and started working with Donor Search and buying data from Donor Search originally, and now work for Donor Search is taking you know essentially nonprofit data, enriching it with outside data. Now all of a sudden you're looking at a person through the lens of a thousand data points, and that is now looking at their connection to your organization, not whether or not they're they're wealthy or not wealthy, whether they deserve to get an email or a mail, a, a piece of mail or a lunch, you know, an invitation to a lunch. And so I really think this is foundational to how AI can be used for nonprofits in the sense that we can start looking at people much more holistically because we're offloading the computational power of calculating a thousand data points in real time to really understand, does this person really care about us or is it going to take us three years to convince them to care about us? And then really understanding that, you know, you and I look at a different organization differently and we're going to look at it differently two weeks from now and two months from now and two years from now. So this is where the largest companies in the world are using AI to determine whether or not someone is likely to buy another cell phone and are they going to buy it from AT&T or Verizon or they're going to buy you know, another pair of Nikes and which pair are they going to buy? You know, Nike no longer believes that they're trying to sell a pair of shoes to every person in the world. They have very clearly targeted the individuals that care most about their brand. That will be the best lifetime, you know, wearers of Nike. And so this is the huge, huge opportunity for nonprofits is to find and cultivate people that don't just care about them at a surface level, but care about them in a deep visceral way and that they can continue to foster that relationship and create much stronger lifetime value um, with the donors that that want to go the distance with them. There's something paradoxical about using machines to build more personal relationships with other humans. Uh, are we, are we, is, this, is it a sign that we're kind of dehumanizing our relationships with humans or is it just using tools to to try to, I mean, I know the answer to the question, but is it (laughs) to build better relationships? Like there's something weird about using computers to help us connect more, wouldn't you say? 
No, I absolutely, I think you make a great point. And I, I think it deserves a lot of consideration. I, I think when I think about AI, I think of kind of in two big buckets, like front end and back end, you know, front end AI that essentially what we call like last mile, um, where it's like actually the AI is interfacing with a person. I actually think there's great risk at, at doing that. So, you know, if you're going to take and, and automate a generative AI to essentially communicate with donors. I think there's incredible risk in dehumanizing fundraising. And actually, I think that will set our industry back very far because this idea that, well, say ChatGPT, just for instance, or any large language model can sound authentic, it actually doesn't mean that it is authentic. And, and in a sector that is entirely based on trust, essentially, if you're just offloading a robot to connect with a human, and that human finds out that it's a robot, where's the trust in that? And, and we will actually do more harm uh, to the industry. But I think conversely, that when we're actually, the way I think about this idea of measuring a person or understanding a person's connection to an organization is actually very healthy. It's similar, and actually we took a lot of this, our original philosophy of this out from healthcare and where in healthcare, healthcare forever changed, you know, 10, 15 years ago when we got really good at essentially understanding this idea that every person is an individual, that no two people have the same type of disease, even if they were classified similarly, that every person based on their own DNA and their genotype, which is just data, will perform differently based on, you know, a, a single drug might help them or hurt them based on, you know, their own individual genotype. And so it really brought forward this term called precision medicine. Precision medicine believes that every person is an individual, that you don't just have a certain disease or, or type of cancer, whatever it might be. And when we started equating that to AI and, and fundraising, it really became this idea of this precision philanthropy is that organizations pretty much forever have had to group individuals into groups. So the bias is that, well, you look similar to this other group of thousand donors and you look similar to these other thousand lapsed donors. And therefore, we're going to treat you based on kind of this broad grouping of the stereotype of, of that. I think the freeing part and the paradoxical aspect of that, and, and I, I truly believe it's freeing, is that with machine learning, deep learning, we can now treat an individual based on their specific you know, N of one, their individual connection to an organization. Our industry is pretty far away from being able to do kind of what we would call like micro segmentation, that you get a specific type of communication at the same, at the right time and the right message in the right way based on your connection. But this is, this is the level of precision that we do every day now. And so this is not like, you know, sci-fi, like Star Trek type, you know, things that we can do this. We can measure the depth of connection to you and an organization today and then in two weeks and two months and know whether or not you're whether or not that communication and the, the outreach that an organization is providing you is resonating with you or not. So I think it's actually very freeing. Um but it I think number one, the the huge bullet, you know, has to be that the delivery of the the creation and the delivery of the messages have to be human first, while the 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 math behind it of determining the connection of individual can be behind the scenes, kind of that that back office AI. 
but the keeping humans at the front of that trust-based relationship is going to be critical. So to rephrase part of that, what you said in my own words, uh, we as humans, because we have limited mental computing power, it's just easier for us to group people of similar backgrounds in segmentations because we, we can't know or, or can't compute all the finite details that distinguishes one person from another. So it's just easier mentally for us uh, to do that, to do this grouping versus using right. AI. We can get hyper-specific. We can, we can really individualize people as they should be because that has obviously uh, infinite more computing power than we do. Yeah, I mean, and this is, you know, the the freeing part of that, right, is that you can remove your own personal biases. I mean, our our industry, the nonprofit industry for many, many years has essentially equated, well, someone's wealthy, therefore they're probably a better donor. And, you know, unfortunately, that has created a tremendous amount of, you know, racism and and lots of negative stereotypes in our industry that that giving is, you know, rich man's, you know, white, white, rich man's hobby, essentially, because that's where a lot of that data has come from. When we free ourselves from that and we start measuring all of the different activities. So did a person open an email or did they have a, a patient visit or did, did they get a degree? Do they volunteer? Do they advocate? Did they sign a petition? All, all, any type of did they fill out a survey, like any type of data that a person has that speaks to their knowledge of and concern for an organization removes us further away from those biases that we once used. And so I think that part of of using AI, to your point, using a thousand data points per person actually removes a tremendous amount of our own personal bias of, is this person a good prospect or a good donor or are they a bad donor? And AI would say there's no such thing as a good or bad prospect or donor, it would say that there's an individual that has a varying degree of connection to you. And that connection seems so high that they're likely to make a gift or that connection seems so low that they really don't care about you. And so I think offloading that math to your point, you know, a thousand data points, you know, that's each measured based on the predictive value of whether or not that person cares about you or not. That's, very freeing. Once you understand the math behind it, or you kind of see this kind of surface visually, that allows you then to focus, a nonprofit to focus more on the human element and less on the mathematical side of of guessing whether that person is a good or bad prospect. Yeah, 180 some odd cognitive biases that humans have that I guess AI just is not prone to at all so that it's able to see the data as it is and not the way the lenses that we apply to it. Uh, So that's awesome. Exactly. I'm curious then, shifting gears slightly, lots of things are happening in the AI world, you know, buzzword, like we mentioned earlier, and it's hard to keep track of things. I mean, this is one of the things you do, you spend your full time almost just keeping up to date on AI. How can or should a, and I'll use the quotes, regular person, someone who's not specialized in the world of AI, keep up to date on what's happening, trends, things that they should be aware of? Is there any kind of source, resource that they can go to or, um, you know, obviously podcasts like this will help, but Again, there's only a certain amount of time in the day. Nonprofits are generally focused on their mission, fundraising and and serving the community. They don't have the time to do all this research. So is there any kind of advice that you can give or tips that you can give to to allowing people to keep up of what's happening in the world of AI? 
Yeah, this I mean, this is such a hard thing because to your point earlier that, you know, the speed at, at which technology is advancing is just, it's faster than we can consume it. And so it really becomes an issue of efficiency and in, in time. And, you know, I, um, I struggle with this because it's like, I'm fascinated by all of this and I want to consume like more than I potentially can. And, you know, so I, I put, there's like probably two different groups. So, you know, if you're interested in AI, but you're also look at the world from like a macroeconomic perspective, or you look at it from a more technical perspective, find a podcast that speaks to you. I mean, there are, are so many, you know, I, I, uh, a lot of my education training is in economics. So I listen to Babbage, um, often and Babbage is, uh, is produced by the economist and, they have some really interesting kind of perspectives on different areas of AI. Also listen to a podcast called Practical AI, and there's another one called Bad AI. And I'm I'm just always kind of consuming those. But I think for the average person, there's probably no world where you can avoid this anymore. Like I, I you know, someone is waiting for them to be spoon-fed information. Like this podcast is a great example of like you know, people need to kind of listen and then not just like, oh, I checked the box, I understand it now, is that to probably, I mean, it sounds probably totally cliche, but like set a goal to read one article, you know, a week or listen to one podcast a week. Because if you blink, I mean, even, you know, Sam Altman from OpenAI talked about this, like it's overwhelming how fast things are changing now that you have to, you could almost dedicate 40 hours a week and still miss things. I would say that, you know, set yourself practically like an, a goal of like one article or one podcast a week that you're kind of staying up to speed. And one huge trick, I mean, honestly, that I've started to use quite a bit now is using ChatGPT to summarize a URL. So now that ChatGPT connects with Bing and or you can just go to bing.com uh, or you can use Bard, you can take a URL of an article, and, and this is the issue for most people. It's like, well, I'm interested in the title of this article. I don't know if it's going to be worthy of my time. Take that URL, paste it into GPT, ask it to summarize that article in three bullet points or eight bullet points or whatever you want it to be, or into three paragraphs, and it will do it for you. And that way, you know, I found myself being able to consume a much greater... Uh, uh, in quantity amount of information and probably a higher degree of retention than I would have otherwise. Because if we think about reading an article that takes 10 minutes, I'm probably retaining 30 seconds of that information anyway. So if I can use GPT or BARD or, or Copilot or whatever it might be to summarize that article for me, um, and by the way, I can do that with videos. So I, you know, long videos that I'm really interested in, but I don't have an hour to watch. I'll take the transcript of the video and I'll paste it into GPT and ask it to summarize for me. And it does an amazing job. Um, you know, hallucinations there, but I would have hallucinated a thousand times watching an hour video anyway. So I would have retained probably far less than I would have in the summary. So um, I don't know if that answers the question well enough for you. I think people can't avoid needing to educate themselves. Um, unless you're going to go and, you know, be a, a doomsday prepper and go off the grid somewhere like this is a world that we live in and, you know, it will pass us by if we don't educate ourselves. And, and really, I think probably most importantly on what good or bad AI actually is. I think that summarized it very well. That, that's practical tips. And I'm curious to know your, your 
looking forward because you know ChatGPT here is, is here today. We got version four. There's obviously going to be a version five, six, seven, eight. Things are going to progress. Things are going to get better. I generally think intelligence and, and and technology is in our best interest as humans. But I'm curious to know your perspective on on where things are going and whether things will be generally good or bad. Because some uh, people are advocating for slowing things down, for trying to regulate it more, or to even stop it, which I don't think is a good idea. And you've got people like Mark Andreessen, who's talking about AI saving the world at some point. And I wanted to know where, where, you know, where do your predictions lie in the future of AI and, and general AI? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we'll probably, we, we could, we, this could be part two, our, another hour <laughs> conversation on the future of humanity as it relates to this. I, you know, I think short-term future, um, your point, I think, you know, we'll definitely see massive advancements very sooner than we think um, in terms of like the ability of generative AI to get better. Like I almost indistinguishable. I, I think one of the things that we've miscalculated as humans is that AI, you know, can't replace empathy or creativity. Um, and I think the misperception or misconception on that is that that it believes that people are in most people are inherently creative or empathetic, which I would say, to be honest, most people are marginally created creative or empathetic. And so I think there's going to be a very quick wake up call. I think we're already experiencing it right now that um, like things like GPT have already demonstrated their ability to be more empathetic and more creative than many average humans. And so that's a, something that we have to wrestle with um, on that front. I think um, to your point, as the models get better and better, as they consume more data, um, even though they've consumed all written text, to be able to consume all video text uh, or video language as well, it 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 will be something that I think will create a pretty big digital divide between those that use it and those that don't. And you know, it's the same as like if you think about right now today, like two college students sitting in a classroom, one is using you know large language models to do their work, and the other that is not. You know, right now, the the current data shows that the person who's using it will have somewhere between thirty to eighty percent um, greater efficiency boost, uh, but also produce a higher quality of work and also be happier because they've offloaded mundane work. So I, I do think that there's going to be a kind of a shakeup very soon on the haves versus have-nots, and it will be noticeably different between those that are embracing the technology versus those that are essentially shying away or, or hiding from it. I think a little more future-wise, um, yeah, I think we need an, a whole another hour to talk about that. I probably remain <laughs> a little more skeptical um, on on whether AI can actually Im improve humanity. At the very, very least, I, I get concerned with this idea that when content, um, that the answer for many nonprofits specifically will be that, well, they can produce more content um, and even maybe better content, but uh, faster or uh, definitely cheaper, that that actually has a, a, a really big diminishing return, that more content is actually not a favorable outcome for humanity, as our attention span is already at an all-time low. Historically, our, our attention span is around eight seconds right now. So it's it's gone from 12 seconds not too long ago to eight seconds. That free or near-free content um, at scale 
can actually really um, atomize people to even a greater extent than we are now that we've seen kind of the effect of social media do. So I, I remain concerned about that. And I don't think the answer is more content. I think it's it's more about how we're going to use the technology to foster relationships. And that's where, you know, I have to really focus my energy and attention is just how can this technology can foster relationship and build relationship? Um, and, and hopefully that's that's something that society as a whole kind of grapples with in the near future, um, not just to produce more, but to produce higher quality. I, I agree. I think this is a, could be a conversation in itself, and maybe I'll, we'll have you back to uh, talk about that in a part two. <laughs> Anytime. But uh, for now, uh, let's. I think this is a good place to put a pin in it. Uh, Nathan, thank you so much. Um, this has been awesome. Where can people learn more about you, the work you do, and get in touch if they have follow-up questions? Yeah, thanks so much, Alex. This is great. And, you know, anytime. Um, I, I love finding people that are willing and wanting to talk about this, you know, kind of the hard things, because we nobody knows the answers, right? We're just all kind of going through every day trying to figure things out. So for me personally, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Nathan Chappelle, C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L uh, on LinkedIn, and also uh, fundraising.ai. So either go to fundraising.ai or just go to LinkedIn and type in fundraising.ai join that group. It's a very nascent um, group at this point, but we're doing a two-day virtual summit in uh, October 23rd and 24th, where we're going to really break down the the ten, 10 elements of a responsible AI framework and provide a lot of like uh, knowledge and how to um, practical aspect of responsible AI for our sector. So I hope people will jump in there. Um, this is truly meant to be this is a, a side kind of side hustle volunteer project of mine. Um, and I think people that join that will find themselves in really good company with a lot of like-minded individuals. Awesome. Nathan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Alex. All right, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again in the next Agents of Nonprofit.